Uh, it's good to be with you. Open your Bibles to James chapter 4. And just for clarity's sake, today Andy is my boss, okay? <laughs> Since we have that clear. Um, it, is <laughs> it is really good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this Sunday uh, just to be here. Uh, I've heard so many good reports from Alex and from Tim and from Andy over these last a couple of months. I've seen pictures of the building outside and inside, but to be here with you is, a, is, a, is something different and for me is, is really special. Um, first of all, thank you for your faith um, to, to, to start this campus. Thank you for making the sacrifice of driving 30 minutes less uh, <laughs> right, than the Glen Mills. No, seriously, there are many sacrifices you are making in starting this campus and starting this church and I thank God for you. And you should know that in my, in my other job as Executive Director of Sovereign Grace, as I travel around, I tell other churches about what's happening here because it only encourages them in hearing how the gospel is going forth here in Drexel Hill and Upper Darby and Eastern Delaware County. And that encourages them in their local outreach. So just, just by being here, you having a gospel presence here in the Drexel Hill area, you are already strengthening us as a family of churches as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen, I sent Tim a number of sermon options, and he chose this one from James chapter 4. And I believe he chose, in fact, he told me he chose this particular one because he wanted to care for you pastorally as you begin the new year, twenty. 16, that you would think about and consider, are there any ways that worldliness in particular is affecting your life? And that's the few verses that we're going to look at here in James that talk about, really give us a warning not to befriend the world. And so Tim wanted to have me bring this message to care for you as you begin 2016. The title of my message is Friendship with the World. And we're just going to read two verses, James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and the first five words of verse 6. So James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Let's pray. As we go to pray, I, I, I want to be faithful to just share with you a subjective impression that I had early this morning. I was awake early. Uh, not because I'm spiritual, because I'm old and I don't sleep like I used to. And I just began to pray for our time together. And what I saw was uh, a person walking down the street at night. It's very foggy. And as you walked, uh, only street lamps lit up your way. And the farther you walked, the more dense the fog was. And the fewer street lights there were. And your world got darker. You got to a place where you were just confused and didn't know where to turn and felt a bit helpless and hopeless. 
And I believe that applies to maybe some of you here this morning, that the fog represents the world. And as you've stepped into the world more, the world's affected you. Um, you've, you've gotten foggy. Your, your soul isn't as sharp as it once was, and it's become more dark. And in this, in this picture that I saw, the, the Lord Jesus just stepped into your world. And He lit it up. And He dissipated the fog. And He showed you the the way to walk and the way to go by His grace. And I believe that's the experience that some of you will have this morning. That the Spirit of God is going to meet you and, and Jesus Christ is going to give you grace to really rescue you from any entanglements of worldliness. So I want to be faithful to share that with you. And as we go to pray, that applies to you. I want to pray for you now. Lord, first of all, thank you for the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit that does what we don't plan or even think about. Thank you, Lord, for, for first of all, that work of the Spirit that regenerated our hearts, that showed our need for Christ, so that we could sing those songs this morning knowing that the blood of Christ has washed us clean. And we pray for the ongoing work of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word that these these few verses would not just grant us more understanding of what they mean, but they, they would change our lives as well. And so we pray, Lord, I pray for those that, whatever that picture you showed me early this morning, whoever that might apply to, Lord, step into their, their foggy, dark world and dissipate the fog, and grant them clarity and give them hope by your grace alone, I pray. Do that, do that work that only you can do, that man could never do. Do that, Lord, we pray, for the glory of your great name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, were it not for a cold, my wife Jill would be with me. If you've not met Jill, by the way, I wish she were here because she makes me look a lot better than I really am. And if you've never met her and I bring her back with me, you'll say, That's, that was an upgrade. You're right about that. Uh, Jill and I have been married for 36 years, and we have three married daughters and eight grandchildren. And so when we're together, it's very loud around our house, obviously. I tell you about my family because several, several, several years ago, when our three girls were younger, Jill and I planned a vacation to New England, and our final destination was a camping trip at Bar Harbor, Maine, because we were taking extra gear, camping gear with us. We put one of those big plastic cargo carriers on top of the van. You're familiar with those? And we loaded it up, and we threw the girls in the van, and we headed to New England. And our first stop was Boston. We wanted to see a couple places in Boston, and we arrived uh, early to mid-afternoon, where it seemed that the rush hour in Boston was starting a little bit early that, that day. At least it seemed to us, because Boston traffic was crazy. And then we began to try to find where we wanted to, what we wanted to see in Boston. And I'm driving, and Jill has the map. And I don't know who the city planner of Boston is, but I can tell you this. He did not get a city planning degree. He got an abstract art degree because none of it makes any sense whatsoever. We were trying to, to go down streets that weren't there, or we, we got on a street and it just ended for no reason at all. 
And because we couldn't find where we were going, we're having a little conflict in the front seat between Jill and me. Things are getting a little heated in the front seat, and we're close to the destination that we want to go. And I said, okay, that's it. The next parking spot we see, I'm pulling in, and we're walking the rest of the way. And right after I said that, uh, just up to my right, I saw a parking garage. And so I pulled in this parking garage, and Jill screams at the, loud of, at, the, at the loudest voice I've ever heard, Stop! And I slammed on the brakes, and I said, What? And she just pointed up. And I looked out the windshield, and I was literally inches away from driving into this parking garage and ripping that cargo carry right off the top of our van and possibly the the roof of the van as well. I, I tell you that story because abrupt, loud words are intended to warn us from disaster, just as Jill's words warned me of disaster. And James begins verse 4 with three loud, harsh, abrupt words when he says, you adulterous people. And by the way, that language is strikingly different from the rest of the letter, where through 15 different times, he's calling the the readers of James brothers, even at times beloved brothers, but not here. These words are strikingly different. They are loud, harsh words that say, you adulterous people, and they're there to warn us. See, this verse contains a warning for all Christians. What is the warning? Simple, it's this, do not befriend the world. Did you see that in verse 4? Look at verse 4 again, you adulterous people. Harsh words. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And by the way, that, that word enmity that's, that's used there is also a strong word. It means to oppose or actively stand against or be hostile to someone else. In this case, to oppose and to be hostile to God himself. But, but why does James call his readers, why does he call us adulterous people? Aren't we just being bad friends? Well, in the Greek, the way it's written there in verse 4 The adulterous people language is written in feminine language. It literally means adulteresses. And so what that does is it hearkens an Old Testament theme that you see throughout Scripture of this covenant between God and His people as a marriage relationship where God's people are His bride. And so when we, the, the bride of Christ... When we befriend the world, we, what we do is we wander off with our other lovers and we commit spiritual adultery. And when we do that, we arouse something in God. We arouse His holy jealousy. Did you see that in, in verse 5? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us? So so what verses is James referencing there in verse 5? 
Well, you won't find a, a verse in your Bible or in the Old Testament that, that uses those exact words. So we know that James, again, is, is drawing on an Old Testament theme that you see throughout the Old Testament of God's jealousy for His people. Let me just give you one illustration from, from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and deny that covenant by making a carved image, the form of anything that, that the Lord your God has forbidden you. And what happens when we do that? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God, our Creator, the One who made us, the One who made His Spirit dwell within us, He keeps His covenant promise by sending His Son to redeem us from our sins through the work of Jesus Christ on the Gospel. And the bride of Christ, that's the bride that He yearns jealously for. So when we, God's bride, when we flirt with the world, when we flirt with our other lovers, we arouse the holy jealousy of God and we make ourselves God's enemy, according to James 4, verse 4. You see, the, the strength of the warning here springs from the character of God Himself. It springs from the holy jealousy of God, where God demands our full allegiance as His people. In other words, God will not tolerate any rivals in our relationship with him and so James uses these harsh abrupt loud words to warn us not to befriend the world because he's trying to keep us from spiritual disaster just like Jill's loud words in Boston were intended for me to slam on my brakes so that we would avoid disaster, James' harsh words here, his abrupt words here, are intended to stop us. That this morning we would slam on our brakes and consider, is there any worldliness in our lives so that we will avoid spiritual disaster? In other words, this is a warning here in verse 4 that we've got to not just consider, we've got to heed. So how do... How do we, how do you and I, how do we heed this warning here in James to not befriend the world? Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to ask and answer three questions. Ask and answer three questions. So question number one, what is the world? What is the world? Now, in using the term world, James isn't talking about the planet that we live on, nor is he talking about the created order. Rather, He's talking about this. The world is an organized system of human civilization that includes its structures and its institutions and its values and its customs that are actively opposed to God and are alienated from God. That's the world. It's the kingdom of this world that's ruled by Satan, and it's not the kingdom of Christ. It's a system. It's a, it's a way of life. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking that opposes God and His Word. So let me just give you some illustrations from our day that illustrate what he means by world here. On October 5th of 2015, last year now, California became the fifth state in the union to legalize doctor-assisted suicide. And in signing the bill, Governor Jerry Brown gave 
his rationale for signing the bill. Here's what he said. In the end, I was left to reflect on what I would want in the face of my own death. So what is the value? What is the principle that our world operates on? What I want. And so no longer is death the choice of our sovereign God, but now the choice based on what we want as human beings. And in operating on that worldly value, we demean human life itself. There's a, there's a lot of worldly wisdom. Let me just give you another illustration. There's a lot of worldly wisdom out there of how to get ahead in the world. Here's things you can do to get ahead in the world. So here's one article that I read. It's entitled, 17 Fastest Ways to Get Ahead in Your Career. So 17 different ways. Here's number four. Number four, choose anxiety-driven growth over boredom-driven growth. Now, I read that. I thought, are those my only options? Anxiety-driven growth, boredom-driven growth. Seems like something in between ought to be good. I guess not. Here's what they say. When your challenges exceed your skills, you feel anxiety. Well, no kidding, right? But when your skills exceed your challenges, you feel boredom. In order to stretch ourselves outside of our comfort zone, we need to seek challenges that are beyond us. Now listen to this even if we don't have the skills to meet them yet. So what is the principle? What's the operating principle in our world? In our self-sufficiency, there's not a challenge that's beyond us. There's not a challenge we can't conquer. Denying the biblical truth that God's power is made perfect in weakness. See, the world is a system of institutions and values. It's a mindset that is hostile to God and alienated from God. John says it this way in his epistle, for all that is in the world, talking this world that we live in, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world's values, the world's principles, the world's customs, its institutions, they are not from the Father. And they are opposed to the Father. So you can see why James gives us such a strong warning. You can see why James says to befriend the world then is to be an enemy of God. Okay, question number two that we have to answer. How do we befriend the world? So we know what the world is. How do we befriend the world? By the way, just let me start in answering this question. When we talk about worldliness or befriending the world, I think most of us can have this tendency to think too narrowly about this. We can get into practices only. So um, it, it can boil down to things like swearing or partying or sleeping around. It's kind of that mindset of I don't drink or chew or go with girls to do, right? That's the mindset we sort of put this in. But we've got to think more broadly than that if we're to understand what James is sharing here, to, to avoid worldliness in our lives. So how do we, how do we befriend the world? Well, the, act, the, the answer is actually found right in the text, in the way that James uses the word friend here in verse 4, especially what that word meant in the day and time that James wrote this letter to his readers. And at that time, and I believe this is still true today, a friend... A real friend 
shares the same values. They they share the same mindset that shapes how they think about and how they live life together. So being a friend of the world means that we adopt the world's way of thinking. We adopt their values. We adopt their customs. And in doing so, we adopt a way of living that is actively opposed to God. Another Another way to say it is friendship with the world is worldliness. That's a term we often use. It's to think in a, in a man-centered way. It's functionally to live a life without God in a very practical sense. Ian Murray says this, worldliness is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach from man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. See, if worldliness is a departing from God, if worldly means that we, worldliness means that we adopt a man-centered way of thinking, then why are you and I so prone to worldliness in our lives? We know from the book of James earlier that worldliness is not simply this cognitive decision that we make to adopt the way that the world thinks. We know from earlier in James, it's also about sinful desires that we have in our heart, and we find to we look to gratify those desires in the world. So James chapter one verses fourteen and fifteen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And John, again in his epistle, that verse we looked at a few moments ago, echoes that same theme. For all that is in the world, there's that word desires again, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So a part of what's happening when we befriend the world is we're being enticed by our own desires. We're seeking to gratify them and with, in what the world offers. And what we do is we wander off with our other lovers. And we make ourselves enemies of God. There's a theologian I know who said this, Andy Farmer. For the believer in Christ... Worldliness is not simply a culture to contend with. It is a state of heart to be forsaken. And in Andy's wisdom, that is well said. Now you know why he's my boss today. So in light of this warning to not befriend the world, I must ask you and to care for you pastorally in a way that Tim wanted where do you see any worldliness potentially in your, in your life? Maybe you see your worldliness in, in the sense that you've adopted what I call situational ethics or situational uh, values, meaning that your values and that your ethics change depending on the situation that you're in, only choosing to do in that situation what is best for you and not rather than living your life based on biblical truth 
You're like that person described in James chapter 1 who's tossed to and fro like a wave in the sea because of each situation that you find yourself in. Tossed by every encounter that you have at work or on your college campus or maybe in your extended family when you reach a difficult situation and you shift your ethics and your values choosing what's best for you in the moment and not making decisions based on the Word of God. I was talking to a member of Covenant Fellowship just two or three weeks ago, just before Christmas, and he, he works in a, he's a professional who works in a profession, a professional organization where they do charity-type work fairly regularly. And so in, in his role, he, he had recently, I think uh, just a couple weeks before that, had done some of this charity work, and one of his colleagues at work said, hey, I noticed that you didn't let anyone know that you did this charity work. And the member of Covenant Fellowship came back and said, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And the colleague came back and said, well, it's, it's company policy that we let others know when we do this charity type work. And the member of Covenant Fellowship came back and said, I don't really care what our company policy is. I know that it's that, but it's not what I see in my Bible. The Bible teaches me not to promote myself, not to draw attention to myself in that way, so I'm not going to do that. And so they, they got off email. They actually had a good conversation on the phone, and this member of Covenant Fellowship Church just had an opportunity to share biblical truth with him, and the colleague conceded and didn't have him share it. See, in that moment, it would have been easy to, in that situation, just to shift your value, but this man, this member of Covenant Fellowship, wasn't going to do that because he was, he was making decisions based on biblical truth. Maybe your worldliness is seen in what you say or how you present yourself on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or anything else I just didn't think of, or because you're sitting alone behind your computer screen or your tablet, you feel the freedom to speak Evil against others, something God forbids in James chapter 4, verse 11, by putting them down through gossip or slander. Or maybe one of those who don't, you don't post much on, on social media, but it's about what you read online, choosing to read things about others that don't put them in a good light, or you re- read information and you realize this information is confidential and something that I shouldn't be reading. You see, our world relishes in in speech that puts others down. I don't think there's a better illustration right now than the political debate and political discourse that's going on in our world today that quickly moves from the issues that we really need to solve to personal attack. And our world relishes in that kind of speech. And we can't do that, brothers and sisters. Whether we're with others or we are sitting behind our tablets and computer screens. You see, who you are, how you present yourself, and what you read online is like a thermometer that measures your allegiance. Either your allegiance to God or your allegiance to the world. Either your allegiance is with the world that relishes speaking evil against others, or your allegiance with God who commands us to use our speech only for the purpose of building others up. There's no middle ground there. So are there any ways that you may need to change what you say online, or what you read online, or how you use your social media tools? Maybe your worldliness is seen in your life 
in terms of how you measure success. Whereas Ian Murray says, in the quote I showed earlier, you, you weigh success by numbers and the gaining of human esteem, as Murray said. And so you've allowed selfish ambition to grow in your heart, something God forbids in James chapter 3, verse 11. And as a result, you see work as the venue for the promotion of yourself and the promotion of your success that you would do anything it takes to, to be seen well of others, even at the expense of putting others down and working for that next promotion. Whereas God is very clear that it, where He creates work in Genesis chapter 2, and He's designed it not only to be a means where we can provide for ourselves and our families, but it's a means by which we can serve others. We can serve the world overall, and in doing so, we can bring great glory to God Himself. Here's what selfish ambition does. Selfish ambition rejects God's good purpose for work and it lies to you. It lies to you saying that the world's definition for success, it's best for you and it's yours for the taking if you will just go after it and so we wander off with our other lovers and we become enemies of God. And I know this area of worldliness well in my own life because I've done this. Many of you know before I was a pastor, I worked in a pharmaceutical, worked for a pharmaceutical industry, and I became very selfishly ambitious. I was the person Murray described. I weighed my success by numbers and the gaining of human esteem. And I would do anything in the workplace that made me look good, even at the expense of others. I was working for that next promotion because it was about my success and not God's glory. Like that person in the fog where it became darker, that not only had a, uh, an effect on my home and my relationship with Jill and our girls, most importantly, it affected my relationship with Christ. And in those years, He was not my first love. And it wasn't until I came to Covenant Fellowship Church where I heard gospel preaching and, and gospel preaching that helped me apply to the gospel that God just then began to turn me and set me in a different direction. So if you're sitting here and you, 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 you know that selfish ambition is in your heart, there's great hope for you in the gospel this morning. Because God can do that work in your life as well. So are there any areas in your life where selfish ambition exists where you've forsaken God like I have done for your own success. See, befriending the world is spiritual adultery and it will lead to spiritual disaster. So this warning not to be friends of the world, it must not only be something that we read, it must be something that we heed as well. Which leads to our third question. How do we overcome the world? How do we overcome the world? The answer to that question is found in those first five words of verse 6 where James writes, but He gives more grace. So our holy, jealous God who rightly demands our allegiance to Him alone is also a gracious God who gives us more grace. In other words, God always gives us the grace for what He demands from us. 
He always gives us the grace to us for what He demands from us. Did you hear that? Because there's great hope in those words this morning. So maybe you are here today and you feel the world's grip. You're like that person in that picture I described earlier where you're walking in the fog of worldliness and you are spiritually getting darker and you feel trapped. Here are the words that you need to hear this morning. But He gives more grace. Maybe you're coming out of this week or a holiday break where you have done things in terms of befriending the world and you come in here with just shame. Here's how God speaks into your shame. But He gives more grace. You see, all of us need to hear this, these world-liberating words here in verse 6. But He gives more grace. And that grace continues to transform us to say no to the world and be devoted to God. And this grace is a free gift that we have in Jesus Christ because of what He has done for us in the cross. So one of the ways that you and I overcome the world is you and I, we live very near to the cross. We stay near to Calvary, brothers and sisters. For Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which what the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When the world tempts us to befriend it by holding out for us shallow and short-lived pleasures, sightings of the cross in that moment remind us that in the cross, the world has died to us and us to the world. In other words, if the world is such an enemy, to our souls, that God decided to send His Son that we celebrated in His birth just a couple of weeks ago, and then bruised His Son on the cross, then this world is not a friend. It is a foe to which we must say no. Amen? Amen. Say no to worldliness in your heart by living near the cross of Jesus Christ. Let John Owen encourage you. When someone sets his affections on the cross... And the love of Christ, He crucifies the world as dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us live near the cross. And as Owen said, let us, let us set our affections on the love of Christ and be reminded how much He has loved us in the cross. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I just say, I'm so glad that you're here. We're all so glad that you're here. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you though that if you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, you are an enemy of God. You're a friend of the world and an enemy of God. And what that means is you are, you are living under the wrath of God. And that will fully be experienced by you when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But He offers to you today salvation. He offers to you this, that if you will turn from the world, if you will turn from your sinful desires and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone and that finished work on the cross that we just talked about, you will be saved from wrath and judgment. Call upon His name today and you will be saved. And not only that... Jesus calls you a friend. A former enemy is now called a friend. 
And for those of us who are here that are Christians, we need to fight worldliness in our lives by taking time to relish in our friendship with Christ. Because this is a wonderful friendship. It's like no other because it's a friendship that leads to life and not to death. It's a friendship that will satisfy us eternally and, and, and not compare to the fleeting joy that the world offers. A friendship that nothing in this world compares with. So overcome the world by taking time to treasure Jesus and relish in the fact that He calls you a friend. Oh, that's good news. Another way that we overcome the world is we pray and we ask God for this grace that he tells us about here in verse 6. We have, to, we have to pray and we have to ask him for the grace. And this grace that is available to us, it flows from the cross and it is an unending river, river that we can never exhaust. It continues to flow and flow in our life because of the cross. Any Johnson Flint. She, she wrote a song probably around the late 1800s entitled, He Giveth More Grace. And I want to read you the fourth verse of that hymn. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth Again, when we are tempted to befriend the world, we overcome it by asking God for that grace, knowing that He will give it and give it and give it again. Amen? All right, one last way that we overcome the world. We overcome the world when we live our lives based on the truth found in God's Word. We live our lives under the authority and based on what we find here in our Bibles. Here's what I find in my own life. Befriending the world often goes undetected in most of our lives. It, it happens very subtly and it happens very slowly. They can be in what seems to be small decisions or compromises in the mundane of the, of the day-to-day. And slowly, even, even in an undetected sense, we begin to wander away from God. And James is so good to end this letter by showing us one of the ways that we wander away from God. Look at James chapter 5. It'll be on the screen, I believe, as well. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders. So we're talking about somebody wandering away from God. If anyone of you wanders from what? From the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul in death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what do we do to overcome the world? What do we do to prevent our wandering? We stay rooted in the truth. We live our lives based on God's Word. And what, the, what God's Word does when we live our lives based on the truth found in God's Word is it acts like an anchor that tethers us and doesn't let us go into the world and keeps us close to God so that we will not wander away from Him. So we must have biblical convictions then about the way that we, we live our lives because we're going to be faced with decisions and with issues that are going to be based on biblical principles. So do you have biblical convictions that guide what you read online or what you say online or how you present yourself online or how you use your social media tools? 
Do you, do you have a biblical understanding of work, maybe even a biblical theology of work, where you see work as the context where you provide for yourself and your family, but the greater good of serving others in our world and thereby bringing glory to God? Do you have biblical convictions about entertainment and what you choose to expose and not expose yourself to? Do you have biblical convictions in the area of money and how much you will make and how much you will give away and how to spend and use your money? Biblical convictions that are based on the truth found in God's Word are not just something that we write down on a piece of paper and we tuck it away in the corner. They are intended to shape how we live our lives each and every day, even in the mundane of each and every day. And they are this means of grace. This Bible is a means of grace that is to work in our lives each and every day. Now let me close with this. Had I not heeded my, my wife's loud, strong warning in that front seat, we would have drove right into at least vehicle disaster. This abrupt, loud, loud, harsh warning here in James 4 is intended to, to keep us from spiritual disaster, from befriending the world. So friends, so brothers and sisters, as, as this year begins, based on what is in this text, I must ask you, will you heed this warning? Will you heed it and not befriend the world? And, and by the way, if you have wandered, if you're a wanderer, we sang it earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the one I love. If, if you have wandered, if you have befriended the world, here's the good news. But He gives you more grace. And so today, come to Christ. Where you see any worldliness in your heart and you're convicted, confess that to the Lord. God is eager to forgive you. Not just forgive you, to give you His grace that will change you, that will transform you, that will draw you back so again you can treasure and relish your friendship with Jesus. Because that grace that's available to you today be available to you this year. And He's going to give it again and again and again. Amen.